Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. This is a very special bonus episode today. My new friend, Jeremy Genovese, who is Associate Professor of Human Development and Educational Psychology at Cleveland State University. I stopped through Cleveland a few months ago to talk to him about his new book, which just came out. This is why we're releasing this as a special episode. His book is called Remembering Willie Nelson, which has nothing to do with Willie Nelson and everything to do with remembering. Um, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about, um, memory, 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 memory. If I remember right, Hey, come on. I don't use that joke during the podcast. You're welcome. And we talk about, uh, GPSs. We talk about memento. We talk about what goes wrong in the, in the brain. Sometimes we talk about the difficulties of learning and memory. We talk about the difference between, um, our ancestors and how the brain was constructed to, um, learn and remember things relevant to them as opposed to um, what the conditions are in today's modern society. This is a really fun episode. He was just a super easy guy to talk to and um, uh, uh, which <laughs> uh, was fun. I'd never know exactly what to think when um, sometimes I kind of cold call people, which this was the case uh, this time. And, and he seemed um uh, i sometimes get a weird response when i reach out to scientists i'm like hey i'm a comedian that wants to do a podcast um about science with you and people think it's like a prank and aren't sure what to think and he was one of the people that it seemed like at first maybe he wasn't sure what to think and i was so happy that we did it because he was uh just a blast this was fantastic episode please send me your feedback to the here we are podcast.com go on the website send me feedback um go on my facebook or twitter and do the same and uh if you guys enjoy it please share thank you guys for listening and enjoy the episode 
Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody. This is Shane Moss. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast. And I am uh, continuing my journey around the United States of America, um, figuring out all of the answers to life's mysteries. Uh, I'm almost there. I I started this project a couple weeks ago. I think I'm just about done. I think I I got just about all of life figured out for us. Um, But today, I have a very, very special guest. Uh, I'm here in Cleveland at Cleveland State University. And my guest today is uh, Professor Jeremy Genovese. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Welcome to Cleveland. Oh, thank you very much. I just was in, uh, I was in Livonia, Michigan, doing some shows, and then I'm making my way to Myrtle Beach, and, um, and I have a friend in Cleveland, and there was a little comedy festival going on here, so I decided to right. stop through. Your, your first time in Cleveland? No, I stopped through one other time, similar circumstances, uh-huh. just kind of passing through. Uh-huh. Um, uh, how do you like our fair city? I, I like it. Uh-huh. I like it. Good. You know, um, to, to be fair, um, when you hear about Cleveland, mm-hmm. sometimes you don't hear the best right. things in the world. So I don't know if my bar was just set uh-huh. a, a little bit uh-huh. low because I'm like, What's the problem with Cleveland? Right. I, I love it here. Well, I think we, it's you awesome. know, we, we've had our share of problems, but but I think when you live in Cleveland, you're always torn between telling people how <laughs> great it is and then not wanting to tell them because then everyone will come here. But it really is it really is a wonderful city. Right. So welcome. So. Yeah, I'm enjoying it so far. Um, and I was um, I was fortunate to find you. I was looking for a professor in, uh, in Cleveland. I just Googled. You know, I I, I sometimes look through um, mm-hmm. colleges, see what different varying uh-huh. research they're doing. A lot of the guests that I get are suggestions from other guests, mm-hmm. but then sometimes I'm in a place and I, I'll just decide to look at what um, some various research, see if there's anything that I'm interested in. And I just stumbled across um, um, what you do, which is a uh-huh. lot of educational development stuff. And, and also from uh, I gather from kind of an evolutionary psychology perspective. Right. As well. I, I would say my interests are pretty eclectic. So uh, I am, I do a lot of work related to uh, education, to learning, re- really. Um, but I'm also interested, related to that, I'm interested in memory, but I'm also interested in individual differences, uh, evolutionary psychology. So, so I have a pretty broad range of, uh, right. range of interest. Yeah. This is, it, it really, um, it struck me as someone I'd be interested in talking to because. Um, because, you know, I'm, one, I'm interested in evolutionary psychology, but also um, I'm very much interested in um, educational development. And I, I'm someone uh-huh. who uh, just never paid attention in school. Uh-huh. I, was a, okay. I was a horrible student. Uh-huh. I never went to college. I mean, I got it in my mm-hmm. head very early on that uh-huh. I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Uh-huh. And so... I never really saw the value in uh, education. They don't have college and... courses in that yet? Or... <laughs> <laughs> right. I actually get... did take a comedy oh, okay. class at okay. like a technical college uh-huh. when I first started. That was helpful. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, it, uh-huh. you know, it, it, was, it was foolish. Now mm-hmm. looking back, I wish I had paid more attention. But I do good at tests, and that was enough to, to uh-huh. get me by. And I'd even be put in advanced mm-hmm. classes and stuff. But I would never do homework. I just... Uh-huh. 
when am I going to use this stuff was my attitude. Uh-huh. And oh, if I had a dollar for every student who told me that, <sighs> I'd, be, I'd be wealthy wealthy now. But, you know, science is not closed to you. I mean, I think, you know, people say, well, I didn't study science. You can study science now. There's nothing, you know, the information that's available to you. This is what I'm finding you, out. Yeah, it's, and, and people can actually do science, too, which I think is really exciting. Is you see more and more people who don't have academic positions doing research and getting papers published and stuff. So the, you know, the world's open to you. That's uh, so, yeah, that's absolutely amazing. That would yeah. be, if I published a scientific paper one uh-huh. day, that would be, um, that, I, I mean, it would be very amazing and flattering, uh-huh. but it would also be a very silly thing. I think. Well, I don't it's, know. I don't know. I bet comedy is a very interesting area for us. I, I, you know, I, yeah. I've heard there's some research that goes on about comedians and so forth. I bet, well, uh, my I, my one of my episodes so far was uh-huh. a neuroscientist uh-huh. who scanned my brain as I thought of. Oh, uh-huh. okay. As one as one of his papers, uh-huh. and then I had um, a psychology professor that traveled around the world, seeing what made different cultures. Uh huh. So uh-huh. yeah, it's definitely. Oh, okay. So you, you got right you got some deal. beta there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm and another reason why I'm excited to talk to you is because I actually didn't know this until I contacted uh-huh. you. But um, speaking of my own personal shortcomings, which I need some major improvements uh-huh. on, you wrote a book on memory. Yes, I, I have a book on memory. It should be coming out in uh, November or December. We don't quite have a publication date yet. But you let uh, me know, and I'll release this like the week that it uh, oh, okay. comes out. Great. So, so, so the book is titled uh, uh, "Remembering." Uh, well, originally it was "Forgetting Willie Nelson," but <laughs> but but I was advised that it would be much more positive. It was. It's called uh, "Remembering Willie Nelson: The Science of Memory Improvement." I do truth in advertising. There's almost nothing in it about Willie Nelson, so it's not a memoir of Willie Nelson. It's, it's about, it, the, the title comes from the fact that I had one of those terrible tip-of-the-tongue states where you know the name, you know that you know the name, and you just can't get, get to it. Uh, so that's where the name, name comes from. And it's really about the science of memory and some of the newer research that we have that gives us some indi- indication about how we can help people improve their memory, which so many people seem to be really concerned with, with, I guess, with good reasons, right? We're all getting older. We're all, you know, demands on us are, are intense. So a lot of the book is about um, just what the research says about, uh, about memory and some of the new things, uh, such as space repetition software, that make it possible for people to remember much more efficiently they did in the past. And, um, oh, I, I, one other thing is, is the book also does include a defensive memory. That is, uh, you hear a lot these days that, oh, you don't need to remember that. You can just look it up. And, well, that's certainly true. And I have to say I'm a huge consumer of Wikipedia and Google and so forth. The fact of the matter is memory still does play a role in our lives, and it's still really important for a number of, a number of tasks uh, and it's not so easy to download everything or not even advisable to download everything to your smartphone. GPS, for or against it? Oh, I love my GPS. You love your GPS? I love my GPS. I mean, it's, I, 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 just for safety, man, I'd be dead if, you know, oh, it's well. like, you know, it's like you're driving to some new place and you don't, you have to take two turns left. It's G, GPS is great. I mean, I'm a road comic. A GPS uh-huh. um, greatly improves my life. When, sure. when I first started as a road comic, mm-hmm. it was still the um, uh, MapQuest printing right. out directions. And right, you try to read that way to drive it. <laughs> much more helpful than sure. than whatever, you know, uh-huh. the 80s comics were doing, which is, you know, calling from pay phones <laughs> right. to the club to get directions and getting lost all over the place. However, I've been in L.A. for three years now, mm-hmm. and I use my GPS to get everywhere, 
And I can't tell you a single area of how uh, to get anywhere. <laughs> Interesting. I, I don't know if that's my experience. I think, you know, at least for places that once I've driven to it a couple times, then I think uh, I don't need the GPS uh, after that point. But certainly going to someplace you don't know or someplace that you've only been to a couple times, it's really, really useful. But I wonder, that would actually be an interesting piece of research to see if uh, GPS affects people's ability to navigate without, you know, minus the GPS. I'm surprised that that hasn't been done. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, I mean, it's one of these, maybe like a lot of things sometimes. My, my experience with research is you always get a great idea and then you go in and look in one of the databases and you discover, yeah, someone's been working on this for 20 years and they, they found all the things that you thought was such a great idea. This is very much what I'm discovering just doing this podcast. I, uh -huh. think, I think I have these very thought-provoking right. Um, brilliant sure. ideas of my own that I've thought up because I, you know, I read a book and then I see like some gap in there, uh -huh. and I think I'm making some great connection, and uh -huh. then it turns out that this is something that was researched right. 60 years ago. Right. I, I think the trick is always finding the the smaller the smallest gap that you possibly can, right. because if it's a big gap, people are going to see it. But you have to find it's, it's a little bit like the advice I give my doctoral students when they write their dissertations. I always say. You know, you can write a, a really interesting dissertation on on the great topics of the world, or you could actually finish your dissertation, which means finding something that's small enough that you could actually do in a couple in a couple of years. And it's a little bit like that. Is that really? You know, when people say scientific papers are tedious, and I, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's um, what you often find is that you know it's just it's a little increment that each scientific paper is to, is making. Generally, for most of us, that's where we're going to make our contributions. Is not. You know, everyone's not going to be Einstein or Darwin, right. but everyone's going to find a little increment that they can add to the to the knowledge. So. so me trying to use this podcast to answer all of life's mysteries might be a little ambitious is what you're, it, it, you're that's, telling. That, 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 true. Hey, it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort, right? Uh, per, perhaps it, I should be just, um, maybe this podcast should just be about GPSs and memory. And maybe, oh, right. Maybe we get to the cover bottom some of, of that. Things. Yeah, that's, that, that's true. Well, I had a... My my uh, when I was in my master's program, my uh, advisor used to say that there was no substitute for knowing everything, and I always thought that was a it was an impossible goal, but it was always one to strive for, right? Is to try to just know as much as you possibly as you possibly can. So yeah, I mean, I've I've been enjoying kind of spreading out and learning a mm -hmm. little more. Like I said, uh -huh. I started with evolutionary biology and psychology mm -hmm. stuff, and then I was like, you know what, I I don't know anything about neuroscience, and uh -huh. that seems like a fairly important thing. Mm -hmm. And then you know, learning about hormones mm -hmm. and everything else. And actually, um, I I did want to um, I I was I was recently reading a book um, called. Uh, just started it. I think it's called Tip of This is a Tip of the Tongue moment. Oh, that, really? That I don't your, know this book. That your book is about. Uh -huh. No, no, no. Oh, no, you're, you're I'm having it. I thought you were telling right me the now. name of the book. Okay. No, no. Oh, okay. Um, Can tell me something about it, maybe. It, it was is called Damaged Brains of Medical Minds. Oh, I don't I know. I, I definitely and, don't know this book, but it sounds and, interesting. Yeah, it was, um, is, is all of these journals um, mm -hmm. accumulated by a neuroscientist that were, they were mostly um like doctors and people mm -hmm. studying like memory and mm -hmm. neuroscience and and um different functions of the brain or vision right. or something and then just by circumstance mm -hmm. 
their own vision uh, when kind of like Oliver Sacks. Sure, that's what um, I was going to say. It sounds like an Oliver Sacks is, is yeah, a good kind of example thing. Yeah. of that, right? Right. I mean, Oliver Sacks. He writes, you know, he writes like an angel, and he just describes yeah. these things so so well, you know. But but you know that that kind of neurological literature, which you know puts a face on on the. Uh, you know, in the neurological problem, it's just great stuff. Yeah, I just, I just stuff. finished The Mind's Eye, uh-huh. and then I, I wanted to get um, Hallucinations. Uh-huh. I, I bought Hallucinations. I wanted to start on that. Uh-huh. Um, but I was interested because one of the very first cases in this book mm-hmm. was a man who, um, who it, it was very much like, have you seen the movie Memento? I have not, you know. You haven't. Seen no, the movie you know. Memento. This is funny. Oh boy, this Come is the, so embarrassing. Is that every time, every semester, when oh. I talk about this to my students, somebody says, "Have you seen the movie Memento?" And oh, I say, it's a "I will." Film. And I and I just haven't done it. So, so now 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 I'm on a national podcast admitting <laughs> that I haven't I haven't watched it. Uh, I guess I'll have to now. <laughs> um, easy with that tapping. Oh, on I'm the, sorry. Ta- I'm I, sorry. I do the same thing, and okay. then I wonder if the listeners will hear. Um, no, I, I didn't mean to, once we're getting excited about right. a conversation, I go, Hey, calm it down a little <laughs> okay. bit. That's, that's the no good problem. host that I am. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's a fantastic film. Mm-hmm. The gist of the film, I'm sure. You, I, I've heard it's been described it. to me. So yes. I... Is, um, for the listeners, it's a guy who has suffered an injury, um, and has no, no, um, I, he has, I, doesn't I, have the ability I'm, to consolidate new long-term memories. Yes. It, right. Now, what's because there's like five different kinds of memory, isn't there? Like there's oh, like depends, working memory. It depends it, on who's talking about it. There's different classification systems. So typically, I, I think most people talk in terms of there being a uh, a working memory, which is what it, it's kind of synonymous with what uh, uh, with what we think of as short-term memory, but. The, the phrase short-term memory fell out of fashion with psychologists because it was so widely misunderstood. Working memory and what short-term memory used to refer to is the information that you keep in front of your conscious awareness, okay? the information that you're actively processing. Okay, So when someone says, um, oh, I remembered that phone number for a week and then I forgot it, uh, it was only in my short-term memory, technically that's incorrect. Long-term memory is memory that's stored and can be recovered, okay? So if you have something in short-term memory and it goes out of your consciousness, you're not aware of it, and at a later point you're able to recall it, it was in long-term memory, however, however fleetingly. So we think of, of working memory as being a, um, uh, a kind of a working space. And it's very interesting because it does seem to be associated with these interesting questions about what is consciousness and what is conscious awareness. There are other things, people, in terms of long-term memory, there's different ways of carving it up, but we talk about things like uh, declarative memory as opposed to procedural memory. Mm-hmm. So procedural memory is your memory how to do things. Uh, so for an example, you may remember how to ride a bicycle, even though you haven't been on one, for, for years, and clearly that's memory, just knowing all, people, people sometimes call that muscle memory, but I think that really is misleading because the, the information is stored in your brain, not in your, right. not in your muscles. So one of the cases in this book uh-huh. was, uh, it was a surgeon who mm-hmm. was this, this great surgeon uh-huh. who was doing, mm-hmm. uh, I don't remember what it was, mm-hmm. it was a very common surgery for him, uh-huh. um, and he was very good at this surgery, and you know, it was a very complicated surgery, but he, it was kind of like, like nothing to mm-hmm. him. 
and he had um, he had a stroke uh-huh. while he was performing oh. the surgery, and he was normally uh-huh. um, a a um, very quiet, uh-huh. uh, just just business person in in the room, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, he, he you know he's doing the surgery, and he starts talking about like, so what are you doing this weekend uh-huh. and stuff to uh, the nurse, and <laughs> and starts like acting kind of peculiar and. and and he'd stop, and it was almost like he was forgetting uh-huh. what he was doing. And then, and then um, the nurse would have to be like, "Okay, now, now stitch up this." Uh-huh. And he'd be like, "Oh yeah," and then he'd start <laughs> stitching that thing up. And then, and and he would, and then he'd be like, "Where am I right now?" Oh. And they they were like, "Oh boy, you know, uh, uh, okay, yeah. now stitch this." And and they they would tell him to do a uh-huh. certain part of the procedure, mm-hmm. and he could do this part of the procedure all the while he had completely forgot like who right. he was, where he was. He didn't know if he'd already done the surgery. And so this is like this this is highlighting the procedural memory. Interesting. That interesting. That about. that reminds me there's a story in one of Oliver Sacks' books about a uh, a uh, surgeon who had um Tourette's syndrome. And uh and when you talk to him in his office, he would have the Tourette's, he would have the ticking and so forth. Mm-hmm. But when he was in surgery, he was completely in control of his patients, trusted him absolutely. But I have to tell you, it would have made me nervous. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, if you're so, just a patient, right. he's just like, so I'm going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, right, well. right, right. So, <laughs> um, so, uh, so the one that I was, I was going to, um, the other case study that I was thinking was, um, was there was this one that the, the guy basically it was like the memento syndrome. The guy uh-huh. couldn't form any new long-term mm-hmm. memories and his journal, I wish I had probably had the book uh-huh. in my car. I wish I would have brought it in, but so, his journal was just like, was a time uh-huh. and then what he was doing at right. that time in like his feeling and everything. And it was like every 10 minutes, sure. he was like, I'm waking sure. up. Is, this wouldn't be the patient, patient HM that you're talking it about. Could have been. Yeah, See, my that's, that's, memory. I have a terrible uh, okay. memory for like specific things. We can work on that. Like that. We'll work yeah, on that. that. But uh, um, HM is probably the most famous, most well documented case of that. And uh, it was those are the initials. I think his name is Henry Mollison. Uh, he's deceased now, so his name is public. Though it, and for years he was referred to in literature just by his initials HM. Mm-hmm. And he had had a debilitating uh, epilepsy uh, that couldn't be controlled by medication. And at the time, uh, the only thing they could do, and these were life-threatening seizures. So what they did is they ablated the regions of his brain, which seemed to be the focal points of the of the epilepsy, which turned out to be the hippocampus, which they didn't know at the time is a structure in the brain that's essential for forming new long-term memories. In fact, this is how they found out that the, the role the hippocampus plays is they destroyed his hippocampus. And then for the rest of his life, he could not form new long-term memories. And he would always have that. You could go in and introduce yourself to him. You'd leave the room and come back and he wouldn't know who you are. As long as you were there talking to him, it was fine. But as soon as you left the room, he would have no recollection uh, of that. And, I, and the story is interesting because it highlights the importance of memory mm. to us is that, you know, some people say, well, our goal should always be to live in the minute. Well, he could live in the minute and he wasn't too happy all, oh, all the time, yeah. right? Is that, you know, ta- um, Time is a dimension that that memory plays a role. That's memory is how we locate ourselves in the dimension of time, in a, in a sense. It's the narrative of our li- life, and so um, it's it's important to have that connection with the past. 
you know, I joke about saying, you know, I want to solve all of life's mysteries, uh-huh. but, but what this podcast really is mm-hmm. about is, is um, looking at what makes us mm-hmm. who we are right. from a variety of different angles. Mm-hmm. And, and, when you, and when you think about memory uh-huh. as like, it, it, I mean, it really is uh, who we are. Right. Much of who we are is this collection of these experiences sure. and... Um, and and also part of who we are is mm-hmm. what other people remember us sure. as uh-huh. well. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean, it's it's just a, yeah, it's incredibly. Right. There, there's a story about um, when Alzheimer's, the person Alzheimer, the doctor Alzheimer, uh, first the patient that he first diagnosed this disorder in, uh, as she's deteriorating as she's uh, becoming increasingly self showing the symptoms of dementia. At one point she says, I'm losing myself. And that, and those words, I think really capture, you know, what, uh, a, what it means, what, what dementia means, um, but also how critical memory is because it is, it is in a sense, uh, our sense of self. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's absolutely terrifying. Right. It is. <laughs> um, and, um, and I mean, it also must be interesting to lose a portion of your memory and have it come uh-huh. back, which sometimes happens sure. to people as well. There's this, um, you know, another thing, um, speaking of Netflix, mm-hmm. um, things relevant to memory, I believe it's called Merwin Call. Um, there's this documentary about uh-huh. this man who was in like some bar fight, got his head beat in and... and um, was in a coma for a while and kind of didn't know who he was when he woke mm-hmm. up and to like rediscover himself he he had to um look through like all old journals that he had uh-huh. made about uh, uh, you know old, mm-hmm. like his old diary and like uh-huh. pictures and stuff and then he would ask people about himself and then he part of his therapy was they were trying to mm-hmm. get him to do fine um fine motor tuning by mm-hmm. um, having him paint um, models. Uh-huh. Um, and he got into like painting these models. It's really kind of crazy and bizarre. Uh-huh. And he's like very good at it, but he, he's very like, obviously there's something still very off with him, uh-huh. but it's interesting watching someone trying to reestablish uh, their identity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's going around to people and like, what kind of a person was I like I right. look at these journals and I'm like interesting. I don't think I was a good person back, <laughs> back then it, it's also interesting intre- yeah. yeah it's that interesting, interesting too that you can kind of reset your sense of self too. Uh-huh. um yeah. but yeah it's uh, absolutely um fascinating so I've I've always uh, one of the um one of the kind of cliches mm-hmm. um is is in and this is I fall into this cliche I always say, great with faces, uh, bad with names. Oh, I have a lot to say about this. this, this so I figured yes, that you would. Yeah, because this is one of the most common, the right. most common complaints. So, um, so let me just step back a little bit and say that the first thing that everybody tells you when you say you've written about memory, you've done work on memory, is they say, oh, I have a terrible memory. Right. And that's interesting because there's a lot of research about how people evaluate themselves psychologically is that most people have very positive evaluations of themselves. In fact, impossibly. So, so I, I don't remember the, the exact statistics. 
terrible when somebody my Marie says I can't remember something. But but you know the um, you, you know if you if you go out and you poll people and you ask in terms of any good characteristic like how generous are you? Most people right. will rank themselves. So so something like ninety percent of people will rank themselves in the top twenty percent of generosity, right? right. And uh, it's a mathematical impossibility, right? right? I think Robert right. Trivers does a lot of. Um, some of this, like the self-deception stuff, sure. kind of thinking that we're more, more attractive, attractive than, than we are. are, right? Right. So, so the, um, it, so, so, but memory is different, and and memory is the one thing that you say memory, and very few people will say off the bat, "I have a good memory." In fact, That's even the memory champions won't say that. They'll say, "I just have an ordinary memory." I'm sorry, I'm banging the table again oh, or something. Uh, no, it's okay. <laughs> I'm, I I have to look down at the level. Oh, I see. Well. Okay. I don't no, no, that's that's okay. But mm -hmm. uh, so uh, so why why memory? Why and the reason is I think that memory gives us immediate feedback the way these other things don't. So if if you're not such a generous person, your friends may not tell you that right off the bat, right? Right. right? So you may not know that, but you know when you forget something, like you forget someone's name or you forget some de someone's detail, you know that uh, you know that right away. Now it turns out that faces. Uh, is a particularly difficult, well, faces and names. It's mm. difficult for us because it involves two different types of information. We're extremely good at recognizing fake faces. That is knowing we know the face. And that's part of our experience. I know I know this person. And you can call up a picture of the face and you know, you see the person and say, oh, I know this person. I just can't remember that, that person's name. And, that, and there's evolutionary reasons for that is we're primates. Primates are visually dominant. We uh, dedicate a very large area of our cortex to um, processing visual information, and uh, but linguistic information. Names are a human construct, right? To, I this mean, this is very uh, kind of new in our. I don't know if that's well, where you're going. With yeah, that. I mean, that, that would that, be my wild. Guess, well, I, I would but. say it's it's a different system. So so okay. clearly, language has been something that's essential to being a human uh, for a pretty long time, um, but still we still seem to have some difficulty uh, matching up the linguistic information with the visual inf information. Um, when you get to reading, it becomes really acute because reading is like really, really recent uh, invention. And so that's why, and that's one of the reasons why people have so much difficulty reading or some people have difficulty reading is because you know, re reading is a cultural invention, which may be 7,000 years old or something like that. It's nothing, we, whereas we evolved to learn language we didn't evolve to learn to learn to read, um, so that's a, that's a, that's a separate thing. But in terms of uh, in, in terms of remembering names, one of the problems, which is very clear, is that one of the reasons we forget names is not because we forgot it, but because we never learned it in the first place. So it's a that is it's a failure of attention. A, a very large percentage of failures of what we think of failure of memories. Are failures of attention, which means that it, so attention is a kind of narrowing of cognitive uh, focus on some particular stimulus. Okay, mm -hmm. and generally we so if you think at any given instant, there's all this information coming into your nervous system, right? So uh, you see the things. So there's all these photons coming into your eyes, hitting the retina. There's sound that you hear. You know your eardrums are vibrating and they're connected to the inner ears to nerves. Um, you're actually getting sensory information from the weight of your clothes on your body. You know, all, all, this, all this information is coming in. But generally, you're only aware of a very small slice of it. Like you can force yourself to say all of a sudden, okay, how does my right foot feel, feel right now? And you right. can force yourself to do that. But what you're doing is you're shifting your attention. 
and but the problem is if that if something if you don't pay attention to something then it doesn't get into that working memory into that conscious experience and then it's never going to pass to your uh, to your long-term memory so a, a typical example of this is you go to the mall and you park your car and you get out and you go shopping you come back and what's the problem where am i parked right where did i park where, and, you know and if you think about it it isn't that you forgot. It isn't that you're coming down with Alzheimer's disease. It's that you got to the you got to the mall. The kids were screaming. You were in a hurry. There were a lot of distractions, and you didn't pay attention to where you parked the car. You never knew in the first place. Exactly. So that's interesting. So if you had gotten out of the car and you said, "Okay, I'm parked in front of the Trader Joe's," mm -hmm. and so they, don't say I'm parked in front of the black van or whatever, because it may not be there when you get back. But but if you if you focus on where your car actually is, you just take a few seconds and say. Okay, I know I'm at this spot. You'll remember it. You'll you'll remember it. You know that's uh, what that makes me think of, mm -hmm. and that's so interesting. Is um, is I spend um, so I'm I'm one of these people mm -hmm. that I beat myself up quite a bit uh -huh. for thinking that I have a poor memory, mm -hmm. and um, and definitely uh, you're right in that mm -hmm. I don't pay attention sometimes uh -huh. to the names in the in the first place. Right. A lot of times I'm meeting a hundred people at once or whatever. Sure. And, um, and it's overwhelming, but what that makes me think of is I spend a lot of time in hotel rooms mm -hmm. I, and I'm going to different hotels mm -hmm. all of the time. I'm getting new hotel rooms uh -huh. all the time and having to memorize these new numbers. And, uh -huh. I, and I actually put effort uh -huh. into that. And mm -hmm. I used to, I don't drink anymore, but mm -hmm. I, I used to be, um, a, a wild, uh, uh -huh. party animal mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I used to. I would get blackout, hammered, drunk, uh -huh. not remember anything, uh -huh. and I would be able to find my way to my hotel room oh, somehow, okay. and I wouldn't even remember it. And I suppose that's because I took the time, you know, uh -huh. initially when I got to the hotel to really to learn uh, to, to spend learn, the time studying. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, remember yeah. a few times and say so, it to myself once in a while. So, so two things: uh, avoiding alcohol is is good for your memory. <laughs> so, I, so I highly recommend that. Yeah. And the other thing is, you can apply these lessons when when you meet somebody. So I, you know, I'm not going to claim, I mean, some memory people, promoters will claim that all oh, will give you a perfect memory or, or whatever. All I can say is that if you do some of these things, they'll substantially increase the probability of, of your remembering. So one thing is to make sure when you're introduced to somebody that you actually hear their name and you actually pay attention to it. So when they say, so usually when we meet somebody, it's a new situation, uh, new job, you're nervous, they say, meet this person, this person, and you just don't even hear those, those names. And, then, and if it's a new job, it can be embarrassing because then as more time goes by, you're less uh, likely to ask the person what their name was. And, you know, you could be working with somebody exactly. for 10 years and, and you don't even know the person's, you know, the person's name, you know. I, I mean, and this is, mm -hmm. in my industry, I'm meeting like uh -huh. these TV people that have uh -huh. access to Give me my own uh -huh. TV show or whatever, right. like, like these very important people, and uh -huh. and, exa and exactly, I'm a little bit nervous or sure. whatever. And then, it, you know, it's funny. I I think it actually this affects my social life uh -huh. quite a bit because sometimes I'll be in mm -hmm. um, a situation where there's someone there mm -hmm. that I'm like, oh, am I supposed to know this person? Or I or they seem to know me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they know me just because. Uh -huh. Um, you know, they know me uh, uh -huh. as a, they're a fan or something oh, like okay. that, or, or uh -huh. if I'm actually have met them sure. and, um, and because I'm embarrassed that uh -huh. maybe I don't know this person's name that I'm, 
uh-huh. supposed to, I will, I, w- I will become like a bit of an introvert uh-huh. just because sure. I'm like, or, or you'll use a conversational strategy so you don't have to know your name. But, but you know, it's interesting because there, there is an interesting asymmetry I know from teaching, and I bet this affects anybody who's in the public eye, is that, so if you're teaching a class and you have 30 students, right? right. Well, you have 30 names. And I always do try to memorize, to learn the names of my students in my class. Uh, which works good for that semester, but generally, a few semesters out, it's not so easy. But um, you know, you you, uh, but you have a lot more work to do because you have to remember thirty names; they only have to remember one. So, right. so I think this anybody who is in the public eye, uh, you know, has a larger audience is going to have that problem with a lot more people knowing you than um, uh, than than the other way around. Uh, in terms of the strategy. Uh, I would recommend is that when you meet somebody and you shake their hands, repeat their name, say their name back to them, say, glad to meet you, so-and-so. And And if it's an interesting name, you could ask them about the name or something like that. And then uh, try to use the name in conversation. Uh, You know, when you're talking to them, try to use the name in the conversation. And when you, when you leave, say, nice to meet you. People like it when you use their, use their name. Oh yeah. Now, that won't guarantee that you remember it, but it's going to substantially increase the probability that you remember. I mean, create a better impression with the with the person. There are memory tricks uh, for doing this. I don't talk about these tricks specifically in my book, but you know, if you read any of the popular memory improvement books like Harry Lorraine or uh, Dominic O'Brien or something like this, where you uh, you take the names and then you try to make associations between the name and the person's appearance, usually un- very unflattering. Right. Uh, thing, things. So you should never repeat the, the ones that you use. Um, and those tricks work as, work as well. Um, but they require a little, they have, they're a little bit more effort, effortful to do that. Um, so now I, I have um, about 15 questions since oh, okay. you've been talking. Um, and Great. I'm trying Shoot. to decide which one I want to ask you first. So um, a couple of things, because is would you consider your book um, to fall in like almost a little bit of a self help ish? Yeah, I, I think so. It, it overlaps. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's it, it'll be to... found in like the science section, probably, right? I actually, or you know, I haven't even thought about that. Where I find it in a, in a bookstore, it certainly will be on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Right. Um, but um, it does have a self help component. I'm trying to, I'm just trying to bridge that gap a little bit to have serious science, but to write something that would be useful. To people that would give people information that they might not other, otherwise have, and and it is self improvement. I mean, I actually don't disparage self improvement if it, if it's sensible. I mean, the, yeah. what's what's wrong with trying to make yourself better? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I, along those lines, what I was mm-hmm. curious about. There's just a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know if these are uh-huh. myths or, or or silly, but I've heard this has to do with um, people telling themselves, "Oh, I'm bad at uh-huh. memory." Um, I I think it's like. I, I've heard people say, oh, you're not supposed to tell yourself uh-huh. that you're bad at memory because then you'll remember that about uh-huh. yourself and it will become like well, this self-fulfilling. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think that's true for anything is if, if in any task, any kind of learning, if your baseline assumption is that you can't get better, you're not going to get you're not going to uh, get yeah, better. So, so it's better to believe that you can make improvement. And And the fact is, most people can make improvement. I mean, I, I certainly think it's true when you look at the literature, it's hard to escape the fact that there are some people who have these extraordinary memories that seem like it must have some kind of genetic component, just as there are people who have 
uh, memory deficits, which may be biological in origin or maybe the result of trauma or something like that. So most of us have ordinary memories, but all the available research suggests that, that ordinary memory is nothing to scoff at. I mean, just think of the huge vocabulary that you have in your native language. And Lots of people have vocabularies in several languages. Lots of people who don't have any special education have large vocabularies in several languages. So what, what I think we can say is that most of us have ordinary memories that we can use more effectively. And, and certainly um, the belief that you can do something with any, with any task in life, if you believe that you can do it, it doesn't guarantee you'll succeed. But if you don't believe that, it will guarantee you'll fail. Right, so. right. Um, and then I was curious, um, well, because I, I've also heard like along those same lines, I think I heard that from, um, someone who was a golfer and uh -huh. was, was telling me that, that he had learned that when golfing, uh -huh. if he has a bad shot, you just kind of try to ignore that. Uh -huh. Right. And then when you have a good shot, you go, yes, uh -huh. ah, and, and you kind of uh -huh. and you give yourself this reward kind uh -huh. of, and, and hoping to. Um, that that can increase muscle memory, uh -huh. perhaps? I don't know. Well, it's interesting. Let, let, let me make a slightly more nuanced uh, argument about that, is that there's, uh, when we look at learners, so there's very interesting literature about, uh, about expertise. And this is the thing that Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, is, is about, for example, mm -hmm. this idea of the 10,000-hour rules. And uh, I would argue that once, you know, as an academic is always going to argue, it's more nuanced and it's more complicated than the, than the popular presentation of it. But one of the things that that literature suggests is that initially as a learner, you need some, you need a lot of reinforcement. So you need a lot of praise. You need a lot of, because uh, when you start out, you're, you, uh, there's, it's not very, the activity in of itself is not very reinforcing. So it's very useful when you're starting something uh, to get a lot of uh, positive reinforcement that's going to encourage you to, uh, to continue in the activity. However, as you progress in the activity, you have to acquire the skill of accepting feedback. Uh, and that is you have to be willing to fail and then learn from your failure. And that's, that's a difficult jump for some people to make, to make that to make that transition. But if you look at people who are experts in their fields, you know, there's, there is this very prolonged time of learning and there is an openness to making mistakes and a sense that, okay, I'm going to make mistakes now, but from these mistakes, I'll learn something, something in, in the future. So. Right. Yeah. We talked a lot about that with, um, my guest, June Gruber, who uh -huh. was a few episodes ago talking about kind of the, um, the adaptive function of kind of negative emotions. Uh -huh. Sometimes some of these, sure. some of these, um, the reasons why we have these icky feelings that uh -huh. everyone's trying to run from are actually uh -huh. meant as learning mm -hmm. tools, um, more, more or less. Um, uh, which, uh, um, brings me to maybe uh, something I, I didn't think of until now. I was curious, um, how things can go, um, bad with memory uh -huh. like this post-traumatic stress disorder mm -hmm. things like that things sure things that we kind of uh -huh. <laughs> wish we could like i mean i i do some material on stage about you know mm -hmm. this this kind of embarrassing mm -hmm. high school memory it happened to me 
20 years sure. ago. And really, it's like a nothing sort of thing. Sure. It wasn't things, that big of a deal. Right. But uh, it just it stays with I'm, you. Yeah, I'm in the shower. I'm driving. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. this memory. Sure. Comes. No, it's true. It's, it's things that have emotional valence. We tend to remember better. So, so you think about memory. Uh, what are the adaptive functions of memory? So you know, memory is about one of the things memory is about is about learning from experience. So that means on one hand, you're going to remember things that are repetitive. So why is it that if you go through flashcards over and over again, you'll eventually, or you repeat a poem over, you'll commit it. And why does repetition work? Well, because our, our brains are primed that if something is repetitive in the environment, maybe we should pay attention to it. And we're like, and we're therefore we'll, we're more likely to commit it to memory. On the other hand, if something has, if something is surprising or sudden or threatening to us in some some ways, either physically or psychologically, that has strong emotional valence, and that's stuff that's worth remembering too, right? So, um, you know, if if you remember that, you know, if our ancestors remembered that there's a you know dangerous carnivore living in a particular cave, that was worth you know, and that you know it chased you once, you want to remember, stay away from that cave, right? right. So, so, uh, so I think that's true. Is that clearly? Um, you know, I think most of us have experiences. So it's nothing out of the ordinary. Most of us have the experience. We remember some, you know, some stupid thing we did or something terrible that happened to us. And those, those memories seem particularly, uh, <laughs> particularly vivid. Yes. Yeah, not, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a, my, my joke is that it's not, you know, unfortunate. There's no post euphoric relaxation syndrome. Uh-huh, yes. It's like, uh-huh. Back in 75, a puppy licked my face, and now I can't get mad at anything. You know? it's uh, interesting. Interesting. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe we could get, you know, talk to a pharmacologist. Maybe there's something uh, possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, what are your feelings about, um, about the pharmacology industry and, like, kind of the cognitive sciences? And, uh-huh. um, well, that, that's pretty broad, the way you, uh, you frame yeah, it. Yeah, as far as... As far as um, because I, I saw some of your work you did on, um, mm-hmm. we were talking about focus mm-hmm. and memory. You did some um, work on kind of um, like Ritalin, correct? Or, or I've written some things about. Oh, about, you've written. About, I actually mostly a, a book review I wrote. I wrote, and uh, without going into all the details, I gave a partial defense uh, of the use of Ritalin for kids who legitimately have uh, ADHD like like symptoms. So I guess. To back up, in terms of, uh, I do. I tend to jump around a lot. Oh, on that's this okay. Podcast, so no, that, that's for okay. That. You're, no, no, you're welcome to t- take things in whatever direction. No, you that, like. that's that's fine. But I, I, you know, I just want to say so. Um, so pharmacology as a science has advanced, and we have learned a lot of things. And I don't uh, usually when you talk about about uh, psychopharmacology, you immediately get in discussion about evil drug companies and conspiracies right. and things like that. And I have no doubt in my mind that the drug companies are profit-making entities, that they don't necessarily have their patients' best interest at, at, at heart, um, and that they've done terrible things. I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot, a lot of truth to those accusations. Corruption's a big part of life in any aspect yeah, of... Yes, and, and, and so, um, so I, you know, I think people are, are certainly right to ask questions. And certainly if you're talking about a medication for yourself or your kids, you should definitely ask hard, hard questions. Um, but the fact of the matter is, we know a lot more about uh, mental illness, psychiatric disorders now than we did in the past. And we understand a little bit, not, you know, not anywhere near as much as we can, something about the biology of some of these, some of these disorders. 
as is the case with any uh, medical knowledge, any biological knowledge. That is, if you know something about the factors that are causing the disorder, then that leads you to treatments, okay? And the availability of uh, psychopharmacological agents to treat, to treat certain disorders, for some disorders. Now, you know, all these caveats, the drugs don't work for everybody, Sometimes they're misprescribed. Sometimes uh, they, they're overprescribed. Right. Sometimes they have side effects. I mean, all those caveats have to be kept in mind. But for a very large number of people, these medications can mark a real substantial improvement in the quality of their lives. I, I mean, I, you know, anecdotally, I know that whenever I talk about this in the class, one or two students will come up to me afterwards and say, thank you for talking about that. You know, I've taken such mm. and such, and it's really changed my life. Now, that doesn't, you know, once again, now these are anecdotes, right? And, and just like, there are definitely going to be anecdotes of people who are put on meds that they shouldn't have been put on, people who had bad reactions to these. So you got to look at the statistical data and, and so forth. And, you know, what, what we find is that for kids who have the symptoms of ADHD, that is inattentiveness, uh, the uh, hyperkinetic, hyperkinetic behavior and so forth, these drugs for many kids, not for all kids, for, for many kids, these, these, these medications do provide a substantial relief of, of symptoms. And um, when they work, they can really help with the child's education. Now, first of all, you shouldn't just be putting the child on a pill. If you look at the recommendations of the American Academy of Pediatricians, they say medications, if appropriate, but definitely uh, cognitive behavioral interventions, cognitive behavioral therapy to go along with it. So if you're just putting someone on a pill without some kind of cognitive behavioral therapeutic and, intervention. Uh, and what does that sometimes um, include? I mean, I, so, I, I guess it's a case-specific. Well, it is case-specific, case but the general idea, so, so cognitive behavioral therapy represent our most effective behavioral uh, interventions or most effective psychotherapeutic interventions. And they focus on two things. One, they focus on changing behavior. So unlike the, the old uh, model of therapy, the kind of the post-Freudian, Freudian post-Freudian model was insight therapy, that you would talk to a therapist and you would have some insight that would, that would help you. By and large, those therapies have not been shown to be effective. Mm -hmm. uh, what originally behavioral therapy and later cognitive behavioral says, first of all, let's focus on changing the behavior. You've got a behavior that's causing problems in your life. Let's focus on that. And then you use all the traditional tools of learning theory, like operant conditioning and, and, and so forth, uh, you know, reinforcing desired behaviors, not reinforcing undesirable behaviors, things that you can do for, your, for yourself, challenging, uh, you know, catastrophic beliefs. And that becomes the cognitive component. So the cognitive component is that if you look at people who have uh, uh, psychological problems, oftentimes what you see is it's accompanied by maladaptive thinking. Uh, so... Uh, you know, people will often say, so someone with depression will often say, I cannot do anything to make my situation better. They have this, they have this belief that they have no agency in their life whatsoever. So what the therapist is trying to do is to try to help that person think in a, in a more constructive way, in a way that's going to cause you to actually engage in behaviors that can actually make your, make your life better. So change the behaviors change the way you think about behaviors, change the way you think about agency in, in your life. And these, these Un, tend to be pretty effective. Unlearned helplessness. Yeah, un, unlearning helplessness. Yeah, un, so learned helplessness is, is that right. belief that you can't do anything. And so, you, you know, by challenging that, uh, both in behavior and, uh, and cognitively, 
can really help a person. And, and typically, so typically what a therapist will do, we'll break it down into very small steps and have the person work through, uh, you know, work, work through the steps to the point uh, where they can actually change, change their behavior. And, and this has been shown once again, nothing's perfect, but um, you know, it, we have substantial, we're able to document that for many people, these therapies are, are effective. So here's a question that I have about that, and this is uh, this will be tying many things together that okay. we've talked about. Um, um, let's give it a try. Okay. Uh, so so this is regarding focus. Okay. Um, and and we talked about mm-hmm. um, kind of um, evolution and and mm-hmm. kind of these different modules that we've evolved, mm-hmm. and kind of some of some of them are newer in our mm-hmm. evolutionary history, and and so. Um, I, I've been I've been thinking a lot about the idea recently about you know you you talk about all of this mm-hmm. um, unconscious information that we're mm-hmm. processing just sitting here uh-huh. you know the photons coming in the sound you're interpreting language mm-hmm. and taking mm-hmm. context and all of the stuff that we're that that mm-hmm. is completely effortless this is uh-huh. the majority of what our brain is doing we're not thinking about one, putting one foot in front of the uh-huh. other you know and and a lot of and a lot of this is um, a lot of the reason why we kind of take things for granted and don't think things out a lot is because 99.9% of the time our brain is right in, in uh-huh. putting that one foot in front of the other, and, and then it's that 0.1% that really gets us into a lot of trouble. Um, what, what I'm curious about is that um, do you think that, that part of the problem with... Um, the uh, attention deficit disorder, or maybe the overprescription of it, or or just the restlessness in mm-hmm. the classroom in general. Do you think part of that is possibly that we weren't necessarily sure. uh, we didn't evolve in this kind of sure. environment where, I mean, a hunter gatherer tribe would mm-hmm. become a, these teenagers would be out trying to get laid, you know, yeah, and, sure. and now you put teenagers with uh-huh. these same brains in uh-huh. a classroom, you're giving a uh-huh. history lesson about Christopher sure. Columbus, and you're wondering why these kids are sitting there thinking about trying to get laid the mm-hmm. whole time while you're trying to tell them about what year a thing happened. Right. No, I, I think uh, I think you raise a, an excellent point. So, so one of the reasons why, so if you look at uh, the number of special ed diagnoses, it's been going up, and the question is why is it going up? Uh, well, there are a number of explanations. Maybe in some cases, actual disorders are increasing. We don't know. There's a controversy about whether autism is actually increasing or not. Whether it, is it going up or the change in number is an artifact of our diagnostic criteria? And that's a very much a live uh, controversy. Uh, but what you can say is that the consequences of school failure have become greater than they were in the past. So if you go back not very far in time, a high school education was not an essential uh, thing that you had to do. Is that there was, you know, a city like Cleveland was a big industrial city. And uh, even if you didn't finish high school, you just had a high school diploma, you could go out. There were steel mills and still have steel mills, steel mill, but, you know, there was much bigger, you know, had large steel mills, auto plants and so forth, industrial plants. You could go out, get a unionized blue collar job. And earn a decent uh, and earn a decent living on a house and a car and take a vacation every year, and that was possible for you with a, with um, a relatively low level of education by today's by today's standards. Now uh, and so in the past, maybe they didn't care so much if if a kid didn't do well in school, 
there were other alternatives for, for you. But now we've become, our, our economy has become so centered on certain kinds of cognitive tasks that we, uh, that if you don't do well in school, that has all kinds of, uh, all kinds of consequences. So people who don't finish high school, you know, they have, now they have lower life expectancies. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, things that are going on. There's, there's, a, there's a shift. I mean, finishing high school or finishing college, you know, with each level of education, you can see, you know, that there are substantial differences uh, in uh, income associated with it. So, I'm, you know, talking about economics here, which obviously I, I, is outside of my my area, but mine too. Uh, but the, I love wild speculation. Sure, Let's right, okay. But uh, so so um, so I think it's probably true. Is that you know now we expect kids to sit in class in classes, and and maybe you know I, I think maybe there is something to the ideas that maybe we should rethink some of the things that we do uh, do in education. Um, you know where it fits into kids, uh, to kids' life, and and so forth, and maybe rethink some ideas about employment. I mean, you know, the, the idea. You know, sometimes I wonder the I. You know, certainly there are a lot more people who could go to college and do well in college and get good careers. But I wonder, are we really saying that everybody is going to get a four-year college diploma? Is that do we really think that that we could even afford that, even if it was if it was feasible? So maybe we should rethink about how we do employment. Maybe we should make more jobs available for people, things like that. I mean, I think there's other implications there that we need. You know, these are not purely psychological problems, I guess. Is, yeah, is what, what no, I mean, that's interesting mm -hmm. because it's always, I mean, I've done a lot of factory work. I've uh -huh. done a lot of blue-collar jobs, uh -huh. and uh -huh. I always wondered, you know, you get these machines uh -huh. to take over um, sure. jobs, and and um, that that's efficiency. That mm -hmm. That's sure. improving uh -huh. efficiency. Now you're laying off right. these people but that's i mean overall that should be considered progress you know right. but yeah. but instead of instead of it being like hey we we figured mm -hmm. um out how to unburden ourselves sure. with this task we've we figured out a more efficient way of doing mm -hmm. it so we can all uh right. so relax a little bit instead it's not like hey you guys don't have to work anymore right. we got you covered instead it's now you got to go and find something else to do that you have no experience right. with and an so, even worse job so than you had. We don't have a good way of sharing the increased productivity that comes with automation in society. Right. Some people benefit and some people suffer. I mean, we used to do things like cut the work week, but I haven't seen that happen anytime, right. anytime recently. Right. So I, I think we should personally. <laughs> but um, back to uh, back to talking about. Sure. Um, yeah, let's let's get off of politics yeah, before we get yeah, into trouble I, this here. This isn't a political show, right? Um, so, um, I, back to um, focus and attention. I, I think that the way that we um, define intelligence can be a little bit misleading because because people are kind of blown away uh -huh. when you have when you invent this deep blue uh -huh. um, computer mm -hmm. that can beat a sure. grandmaster at chess, and it's sure. like, oh my God, the computers are going to take over uh -huh. any second now. I go on Amazon. And mm -hmm. I order a Pink Floyd CD and knows I want Led Zeppelin too. I, they're, they're so smart. But compared to what a human brain mm -hmm. is doing, this is absolutely nothing. Uh -huh. And I mean, I mean, the dumbest person is doing way more processing than what our top sure. computers are. And, and to me, I, I think it's more about figuring out a way to, like you said, when, re when remembering names, like mm -hmm. these little tricks to remember names, more tricks like that to emphasize um, the 
importance to some of this stuff because it, most people doing these fantasy football leagues uh-huh. are, I, I mean, there's way more processing that goes mm-hmm. into that than learning, uh-huh. memorizing a couple neuroscience facts. Right. But, but it's because that's where their attention is. Right. It's because well, we've kind of evolved to keep track of right. like who the top monkeys are on the hierarchy, sure. you know, and well, social th- status. It, it also highlights the importance of motivation because, uh, so you mentioned fantasy football, but everyone's had this experience of knowing some sports fan. Maybe, maybe some of the listeners are like this, where yeah. someone knows a fantastic amount of information about a particular sport. I mean, just a like Rain Man, right? And yes, you know, but without you know, without the autism, right? 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 Is it your ordinary person? And the person say, oh, "I hated school, didn't do well in school," and yet they have this elaborate information about this one particular area. And there's two reasons for that. One. They're interested, so they're motivated. So they're motivated to learn facts. And the other thing is this peculiar, almost counterintuitive feature of memory, which is that in order to learn new information, you you generally have to associate it with something that you already know. And therefore, if you know a lot about a subject, it actually becomes easier to remember new information. In other words, if your football knowledge is so deep and so rich and you know a lot about different games and history, someone comes along and gives you another fact about that, you got a place to fit, you know, that, that jigsaw uh, piece is going to fit right into something, to something there already. And that has a general consequence, which means that, once again, the advice that we often give people, which is, oh, you don't have to know anything, you can look it all up, may not be good advice. That is, having good general knowledge about things will help your memory because you'll have more things that you can connect. In other words, each new piece of information, uh, if it's just an isolated fact, it's going to be very hard for you to remember. But if it relates to your general knowledge, if you've had a good general education, if you, you know, keep posted on current events, I mean, I don't read the, I'd say read the newspaper, but I'm not sure anybody does any, anymore. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, um, you know, re, you know, if you read, if you read widely um, and you, you keep posted on, on events and so forth, then you're much more likely to have a larger knowledge base and you're going to find that memory is easier over time, that it's easier to find meaning in, in new information. Hmm. That's interesting. So we, um, I, I have a, a, a couple of um, last thoughts and a few other questions sure. um, for you. Uh, some much of this up and um, just some tips that I want for my own benefit. Oh, okay. That's a, that's a lot of, uh-huh. that's a lot of why I do this. Is sure. uh, Yeah. I oh, can't. Great. I can't guess yeah. at what everyone else wants to know about. Mm-hmm. I have to. Hey, what, what's like, the point what if you don't profit from it? Yeah, way, yeah right? exactly. Um, so, so first off, um, charity of the week. I have. Oh, oh, oh okay. So the charity is called Climb for Memory, uh, and it's sponsored by Nelson Dellis, who is the U.S. Memory Champion. Uh, it's a uh, a charity that raises money for Alzheimer's uh, research. Uh, uh, Nelson is both a memory champion and also a mountain climber, hence the name of uh, of his charity. I'm a uh, rock climber. Oh, myself. okay. Yeah, okay. So, so you check out his, his website. Yeah. That's where you'd find it. Just uh, Google uh, uh, Climb for Memory, and you'll find find information there about how to donate it uh, towards this very important cause of dealing with Alzheimer's disease, which, as I think many of your listeners will know, uh, is going to become a crisis in, in America in the next uh, 10 to 15 years, as uh, a large population starts to get older, we're going to see dramatic increases of people suffering from Alzheimer's and other types of dementia. 
And uh, the sooner we can get effective therapies, the better off we're going to be as a society. So this is, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. What do you, what do you see the future of, of uh, therapy? What, what, what do you see the, uh, the hope for some of this stuff? Um, well, I, you know, I, I'm, because it's it's rather terrifying. Right, it is. It is. It is very uh, terrifying. I mean, I think there is a lot of hope in terms of progress, in terms of understanding the underlying biology. We have some better diagnostic techniques now. Uh, there are studies. So there are certain uh, genetic disorders that are associated with early onset Alzheimer's disease, and uh, they've identified individuals who have these these genes. And that gives an opportunity, for instance, to try new therapeutics. Um, so, uh, you know, this, the, the, the mechanism by which the plaques and the tangles in your brain and Alzheimer's is still not fully understood. But I think with better genetic techniques, we'll get, you know, we'll understand that better. And perhaps there'll be either some kind of pharmacological intervention that can reduce, the, say, the inflammation or the progress of it, or, you know, something that it can actually go in, uh, you know, perhaps a, a vaccine that could, that, uh, could help. I mean, there's, you know, uh, there, there's all kinds of ideas that are, that are being floated out there. Um, I'm not a sufficient ex expert on the clinical research That's to tell okay. you what's promising and what's not promising, other than I think, think uh, there is research on it. Um, there should be a lot more. It, it really is a crisis that, uh, you know, that the, in my opinion, the federal government should be investing a lot more money in this because better we, we deal with it now than deal with it 20 years from now when it's going to be a major, a major social problem. And, um, and who knows, perhaps reading your book could uh, help, right, help so, um, activate. Uh, sure. So, so in terms of what we can do as individuals, there is some evidence. Now, I, you know, I, I want to be careful here because you know, once again, this academic nuance here is that a lot of our evidence on this is correlational, uh, and people should be clear about this. Is we, the, the case that cognitive engagement uh, reduces your risk of dementia is not sealed and delivered. Right? This is the difference between a scientist uh -huh. writing a book that can uh -huh. help people and right. most of your self-help gurus, right. is that a scientist will be like, I'm not... I'm not promising you uh -huh. all of all the answers to the world. Uh -huh. that some of this stuff remains right. to be studied, but go on. So, so what we know is that people who are more cognitively engaged seem to have lower risks of dementia or have lower risks mm -hmm. of dementia. Now, that could be because cognitive engagement actually lowers your risk of dementia. That's one possible interpretation. That's the interpretation everybody wants to believe. Another possibility is that maybe you have some underlying biological trait that causes you both to be more cognitively engaged ah. and to be more resistant of dementia, right? And I you never can't about that. you can't prove that based on a core because a correlational design doesn't tell you causation. You can't be completely sure about it. Hmm. There are some studies that suggest, though, that the that the cognitive enhancement strategy might be a be benefit. There's a number of studies. Okay, so my advice is that uh, cognitive enhancement might work. What have you got to lose? It's right. the only game in town. Uh, you'll benefit from it from just the cognitive enhancement itself. Um, so I'm in favor of people exercising their brains, as they say. But the, the one thing I want to emphasize is that a lot of the things that you are told to do to exercise your brain haven't been clinically tried 
or are not sufficiently demanding. So uh, my favorite example of this is you'll find all kinds of sites on the internet saying that Sudoku puzzles will prevent yeah. Alzheimer's disease. Well, uh, I happen to like Sudoku puzzles, but so do actually, I. And they, you know what they do? They waste my time. Oh, tremendously. I, yeah, and and there's absolutely no studies that have been done that show that doing a Sudoku puzzle reduces your risk of Alzheimer's yeah. disease. If you look at the kind types of cognitive engagement that do that do seem to help. There's some work with, uh, with computer programs, but I find the most interesting research has been done at looking at people who are bilingual. Um, and I, what I would say is what you want to do as an adult is to keep your mind open and take on challenging learning tasks. And in, in order for this to have benefit, if, if this argument is true, in order to have benefit, the, the task has to be demanding. Language learning is a perfect example of that. There is some literature that suggests, once again, correlational research that suggests that people who are bi bilingual have lower rates of dementia, which is interesting. Um, learning a language. Are you, are you bilingual? I, I, what I like to say is I study several languages, okay. so I don't, want to, I don't want to overstate the case, but, but one of the languages that I'm currently studying is Japanese, which I deliberately chose, because, well, partly because I'm interested in Asian culture, but mm -hmm. also because it has a reputation as being a really, really hard hard language okay. and it, it is pretty hard, hard but it's fun and you can you can um you know, invest a few minutes every day uh in studying a foreign language um there's all kinds of great uh, now with the internet there's uh, there's no excuse for for not studying for you know the the things that are available what do you use uh well i actually like the pimsler program a lot uh, which is a, it's a sound-based program. It's actually, uh, Paul Pimsler was actually a professor of ed educational psychology at Columbus State University. He's no longer alive. And his original method was actually based upon very sound learning theories. And just learning, listening to the Pimsler's, uh, the, the, I would say tapes, dating myself here, the Pimsler CDs or MP3s, um, they're, I think they're, they're very, very well well done. Mm. Uh, the other source of information I, I strongly recommend is there's a wonderful uh, website called Fluent in Three Months, uh, run by a guy. Uh, he's called he calls himself Benny the Irish Polyglot, and he's a he has these projects. He's a guy from Ireland, and he takes over three months. He'll take a language and try to become fluent in that language. And he's gone through all these what? different languages. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing amazing website, uh, and he has all kinds of tips and ideas about how to learn languages, how to put yourself in situations where you learn languages, how, you know, what resources are available. And there's so many things available on the web now. See, it's because to me, because I, uh, I thought about this like with, uh -huh. my, with my ex and I had talked about maybe mm -hmm. learning Mandarin or something uh -huh. like that. And the concern was like we wouldn't have like Spanish. Mandarin, it seems like it would open up the whole world uh -huh. to travel and, and uh -huh. do a, a lot more. But, but Spanish would be easier living in California. Sure. There'd be like more uh -huh. people. Uh, because because the worry would be like you know you're learning something and you're not sure if you're pronouncing it correctly and then uh -huh. we're out in public trying to speak sure. Mandarin to I'd be worried people would think like we're mocking the Chinese. No, no. Uh, I mean, what what are the things that that uh, that this guy Benny it says is that you have to get over that is that the way you learn is by putting yourself in those circumstances, uh, right? We're so embarrassed to put ourselves in those circumstances, right. learning a foreign language. We're you know that like memorizing names, like I talked right. about earlier. Yeah, so exactly. So so you want to put yourself in that situation where where you're challenged and and so forth. And generally, uh, native speakers are appreciative of the fact that you're trying to speak their language and often very, uh, very helpful. 
So, um, you know, I would like, you know, I'm in favor of learning whatever language you, you know, you find helpful to you or interesting uh, to you want to choose something that, you know, perhaps something where you're interested in the culture or travel to there so that it's going to help you maintain your motivation. But um, I think that, you know, that's a very, uh, that's an example of cognitive engagement that I, and mm. the worst case scenario is you learn another language. So it's, so it certainly does no uh, harm, yeah, the, harm. And it may, I think everyone kind of fantasizes uh, about learning and I yeah. know I certainly have. Yeah. And, and, and even if, anything. even if you just spend a few minutes a day, mm. you can make, you can make progress. So I get up every morning, get on my treadmill, and I'll listen to 15 minutes of a Pimsleur language take mm. for the first 15 minutes, and then I'll do other thing, things. And just that, you know, it's a way it makes the walking less. Uh, the, um, the psychologist Seth Roberts used to argue, I don't know if there's any evidence for this, but I think it's kind of a neat argument. He said that if you take two boring tasks and put them together, they become interesting. And yeah. So yeah. the idea is you walk on the treadmill, and you do, you know, language drill at the same same time, and it's not so bad, you know. Well, you, you, I feel like my mind is activated uh, much uh -huh. more when I'm like driving or in uh -huh. the shower, washing dishes, or doing uh -huh. some kind of mindless little task. Uh -huh. Is when I come up with a lot of my best um, uh -huh. ideas. Uh -huh. like. um, do you? Uh, so this is now going past the time that oh, I normally okay. have. Um, do you have a couple extra minutes? I do, sure, I, gotta, I do I have. A uh, yeah, a few extra. Okay. I'm, I'm enjoying Yeah, go ahead. Go you. ahead. You can no edit it however you want, so that's fine. I, 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 no, I, I'm not going to. Uh, I don't think I'll edit other than maybe this part right okay. here. But, but I was just curious. I don't want to keep you if you have. No, I, um, I, I got a bit of time, so that's oh, okay. Okay, good, because I just had. So I had a, a couple other just regarding the same thing. Uh -huh. I was curious what your thoughts were on, um, on retention of, of reading as uh -huh. opposed to um, like say watching a TED talk or listening to um, an audio book. Um, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there is some, uh, research comparing different, different, uh, uh, modes of, of information. And transfer. I've seen that, mm -hmm. um, the difference between an actual paper book and a tablet, right. um, can affect memory. So, yes. Yeah, so, uh, so let, let's take the example of, of the screen versus paper. There have been a number of papers recently, research papers, that suggests that you have superior memory for the paper over the tablet, over you know, Kindle or an iPad or whatever you're read reading on. Um, number of reasons for this. One is just uh, has to do with the physical properties of ink on paper and, and the strain that it puts on your eyes and your attention and, and, and so forth. Um, the other thing that I think is that I think books sir, have a mnemonic value in and of themselves. Uh, so I discover that... Uh, you know, when I think about a book I read, you know, a great book, book I read when I kid that I really love, for example, I can often think about the physical object itself. You know, there was that great mm -hmm. book which had the map on the front and the illustrations and, and you know, it, it just the pleasurable experience of, of the book. So there's the printing of the book, the cover of the book. I can the, remember like a fact I'm looking for and uh, find it in a book like right. pretty quickly. Because you, you kind of remember yeah. the book itself. So, so I think uh, the book's have a mnemonic value. So now that could change, you know, maybe uh, e-ink will get better and, and, and so and so forth. But, you know, for myself, I've discovered that I vastly prefer to read books on paper. I have switched all my newspaper reading to, uh, to the Kindle. Mm -hmm. um, now, partly is that a newspaper reading is very uh, temporary in any way, way. You know, you do it and then, you know, before you just do it in a pile and took it out to recycling, mm -hmm. you know, you look at the times and you read it that day and then, it, then it's gone. And that, and that seems perfectly appropriate 
to, to that. But for books, I still like the the physical uh, the physical book in terms of uh, in terms of retention. Um, in terms of watching talks versus uh, versus reading, I, you know, I, I I like TED talks. I think they're very interesting. I learn learn things from watching them. Um, but um, I always feel like the information density of reading is greater than than talks. I mean, I, I TED, TED talks are better, but sometimes when I watch science documentaries, I get so bored because mm. you know, like, so this is the Serengeti. Okay, okay, can we, you know, just get to the point? You know, it's right. like, you know, I, you know, tell me what the lion's going to do. Don't spend <laughs> yeah. all this time getting, you know, building up to it. So, so maybe that's my own. Uh, impatience, uh, but mm-hmm. but I find like if I'm reading a book, you know the information. The books can fail at this too. I mean that, that's my critique of some self help books is that it's you know two percent ideas and ninety eight percent anecdotes, and it's like okay okay I get I get the anecdote. Just tell me what your idea right. your idea is. So but but in general I find that in my own experience I find that text is more idea dense and uh, more more effective in in the long run. See, I, I think that reading for me is a lot more thought-provoking, uh-huh. and I think it's a lot more, um, I, I tend to remember things better mm-hmm. when I read. It's just that I'm such a brutally slow reader, uh-huh. and especially with having two, you know, I'm doing sure. like two, three of these a week and trying to sure. learn as much as I can about uh, specific uh, people and read as much as I can. And, and um, But... That it, that's another thing as far as um, uh, attention mm-hmm. is concerned. Um, so I read something, mm-hmm. and I'll read like the better the book, mm-hmm. the less I can focus on it because I'll read like a page. It uh-huh. will get me thinking about sure. something. And then then, then I'm off. I'm, sure. I'm thinking about it. Right. I'm off in outer, outer space for a while. Now to me... I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. No, not and I think in my education growing mm-hmm. up, like teachers would scold you for doing something uh-huh. like that. That would be like a poor attention span. But really, this is helping me incorporate a sure. lot of this into my memory. No, I, I think there's something to be said for the free play of the of, of the mind. I mean, I used to have a similar experience. I still have this. Still happens to me. I'll go over to the university library. I still love libraries with mm-hmm. stacks where you can, and. You know, you'll be looking for something specific that you need for a paper or something. Then, out of the corner of your eye, you'll see some book with an interesting title on it. And you pull it down, and then two hours later, you realize you've forgotten completely why, because you've been you've been pulled off on this other, oh, you know, this, this other thing, you know. And so, so I think that's now you have to be you do have to be careful because there are times when focus is important. I mean, clearly, the internet is is the worst. For, for those of us who can be distracted like that, because it's like one fact leads to another, one link leads to another link and another link, and then pretty soon, hey, I get my work done. So I think it is important to, you know, try to develop work habits, you know, where you do things like, you know, I actually time myself at my desk, you know, so oh, tw- twenty five I have a timer, 25 minutes, and I, ah, then I the, stand uh, Is that the... Um, the, the Pomodoro? Yeah, but, Mine's kind of a variation of that. Okay. I've been explaining with, I can't really get it down to work the way that people... People do for one thing. The twenty-five minutes never works in exactly like where it's mm-hmm. like, you know, the the alarm rings and it's just at a point where you want to type something else. So, right. I, so I haven't quite tweaked it to the point where it's perfect yet for me. Yeah, me but but I do find that it is useful to just take you know so uh, work for twenty-five minutes, and then stand up for five minutes. You know, mm-hmm. I think just in terms of your health, there's evidence that that's that that's important. So just stand up. Sometimes I'll stand up and I'll read, but I'll try to do something else. Like I'll stand up and just stand and read for five minutes and then go back. 
back. And I, so I find that, that I'm, I'm a big fan of kind of life hacking, you know, time management techniques. Yeah. Um, I, I can't say that I, you know, I ha- I've never been able to get to, you know, inbox zero and some of these other things that people, people say, but right. um, oftentimes I do learn, uh, you know, very useful techniques from th- even things like just like turning off your email, your automatic email alert on, on your email software or is, Facebook. Or yeah. Ugh. Right. Right. It's just so yeah, that you're not sure distracted. You're not constantly. Stuff, good for you, but it's so distracting. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. as far as, as far as writing, uh-huh. um, uh, are, are you like when you're writing your book, mm-hmm. um, was it all on the computer or are you a pen and paper guy? Occasionally pen and paper. I mean, I, I, I you know, for, for some reason, and many writers will tell you this, it seems that you're a better proofreader, uh, on, on print. So, you know, oftentimes you print out chapters and then you proofread them on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and then I would write, you know, like if I'm looking through something like I want to change that paragraph or add a paragraph, I would handwrite it, but mostly I'm on the computer now. Most, mostly I'm in word processing soft software and just, uh, you know, it, it's, it's so much easy, easier yeah. to use. And it has all these other added features like spell check and stuff. Right. You know? Me too. I just feel like there's like different parts of brain at work. Uh-huh. Sometimes I'll sit, uh, I'll force uh-huh. myself to sit down in front of the notepad and I'm like, Oh, I'm coming up with much better ideas uh-huh. than what I, yeah, I, I think that's conceivable. Sure. And then, and then sometimes, you know, just doing voice notes and stuff is kind uh-huh. of activating a different part of the brain. Oh, but, that's, um, that's interesting. I've never done voice voice notes, but I bet in, in your profession that that might be more useful because oh, so much of what you do is, yeah. is vocal, you know. And um, and and I'm spending a lot of time in cars and stuff like sure. that. Sure. Oh, yeah. It's easy to just yeah. quick make a note. But, um, well, I, I look forward to, I, I got a sneak peek at your book, and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading um, the rest of it. Remembering Willie Nelson Maybe the most misleading. Hey, I'm trying to sell some books here. (laughs) A lot of disappointed (laughs) Willie Nelson fans. This is like when I uh, printed my book, The Beatles, and Uh people are like, this is about bugs? What the hell is this? (laughs) (laughs) um, If if I could have worked Oprah into the title, I would have done it. But but, uh, only so far you can stretch that. Well, it was an absolute pleasure to meet you. Thanks My for pleasure. sitting down uh, with me, and and good luck to you. And I I hope everyone uh, listening gets your book. And uh, maybe I'll uh, have you back on again sometime. I'm back through Cleveland. Great, uh, great, great fun, and I really appreciate it. Take care, Jeremy Genovese, everybody. Thank you guys again for listening. Please go and check out Jeremy's book, Remembering Willie Nelson, on Amazon and Kindle, and go to my website at the herewearepodcast.com website and click on Ask a Scientist. Give me some feedback, any questions that you might have for future episodes, especially for uh, Jeremy. If you go and check out his book and you have questions, uh, I will probably be interviewing him again next time I'm through Cleveland. He was a fantastic guest, and I didn't get a chance to read his book because it wasn't out yet before the interview. Um, I I got the manuscript a couple days before and got through a little bit of um, what I could with, uh, with the time constraints. And so I would like to go back and do uh, a follow-up sometime and dive more into memory. Um, I hope you're interested in that, but send me some feedback. And also, um, tune in next Monday. My guests will be Celine Melcoach and Joe Goodman, uh, academic married couple who I, it's actually the second couple that I recorded an episode with, but the first one I'm going to air, I bumped this one up a bit because it is the holidays and uh, people are out shopping 
and buying gifts and um, much like the um, Morgan Ward episode where we explored a few gift-giving ideas. We, again, explore a few gift-giving ideas in this episode, some different ones. We examine and dive deeper into some that we already discussed, and we examine um, a bunch of consumer behavior, which is always super crazy and interesting and um, absolutely fascinating. And I'm, I'm having way more guests on about this subject that I ever thought I was going to um, because it's just kind of been um, blowing my mind and I'm now kind of getting obsessed with all of this consumer behavior stuff. It's, it's such a big part of our lives. So make sure and check that out on Monday. It'll definitely help you out with all of your um, uh, consumer spending, your holiday gift giving. And, um, you know, this is also the time of year where a lot of times people start taking trips and stuff like that. We do some talk about some research into um, uh, uh, vacationing research and how to get more out of that experience and um, and get the most out of those memories. So uh, make sure and tune in and send me feedback and share this with everyone you know. Go and rate it on iTunes. It helps me out tremendously. I'm trying to do this pretty much all on my own. Um, and and this, so this is kind of like a grassroots sort of uh upstart so if you guys could help spread the word for me you're all i got um so i need you to do that for me thank you so much are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Young. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. and he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh, check out a clip. It also makes me think like we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how like just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich, I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a bat. I help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my <laughs> 